Welcome to the False Claims Act Insider, presented by Price Benowitz. With more than 15 years of experience as an attorney focusing on KETAM law, Tony Munter explores the risks and heroism involved in being a whistleblower alongside distinguished attorneys. Jeb White, you're the once and now again president and CEO of Taxpayers Against Fraud. I guess a little bit like Nancy Pelosi, you have previous experience in the job and and it's gotten tougher. Um, <laughs> uh, and uh, those of us who happen to be members of TAF are extremely uh, grateful for you uh, being stepping in and doing this, especially since you left a partnership at a big firm to do it uh, in the middle of COVID. Um, uh, uh, but anyway, that's, that's who Jeb is. And it's a, it's a real honor to be able to interview you. Um, I don't suppose there's anything about the board meeting that you had for Taxpayers Against Fraud that you want to tell anyone about right now. But what do you think the general direction of TAF has to be going into a new administration and dealing with the many new laws that we're dealing with now? Uh, is it more advocacy or, 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 or uh, supporting individual cases or working with members or how do you how do you see the sort of sort of TAF, if you will, over the short term? Sure, sure. So you know, uh, you know, in the middle of a pandemic, a lot of money coming out of Congress right now, trillions of dollars. You know, uh, just yesterday, uh, President-elect Biden talked about another one point nine trillion dollars uh, being injected into our economy. So you know, a lot of government dollars flowing out, which means. Uh, increase opportunities for fraud, which means there's an increased need for organizations like TAF and attorneys like yourself. Uh, but you know, we got to do a better job of telling that story about the role of key TAM attorneys and whistleblowers and why they are so important and that there is an avenue for uh, employees who are recognizing fraud inside of corporate walls to step outside and highlight that fraud for key time attorneys and the government. Uh, so, you know, our role uh, is probably uh, right now, right? TAF was built for uh, problems like this or opportunities like this or uh, issues of uh, increased government spending. Um, so this is, this is what we were made for 30, 40 years ago. Uh, it's good to be back. Uh, you know, the, with these challenges comes great opportunity for people to do the right thing. So uh, I, to tell our story is, the, is our main mission right now, to really make sure that people are aware of the important role that whistleblower attorneys like yourself play and whistleblowers in general. Well, I think it's interesting because when you, I was looking at your resume and, and unless I'm wrong, most of the time when you were first uh, CEO of TAF, we didn't have the SEC whistleblower program. We didn't have, have the CFTC whistleblower program. There is a, a Transportation Safety Act whistleblower program, which hasn't done much yet. Um, and uh, so I don't know. I'm, I mean, I'm sure Taft gets some of the credit for uh, advocating that there be more whistleblower programs, but at the same time, there's more law for everybody to understand and follow. And I, it, the job's got to be more complicated for you as it is for most whistleblower lawyers right now, I think. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I, I remember uh, when I joined Taxpayers Against Fraud in 2004, uh, one of our, our friends in the Keaton Bar uh, took me out to lunch and he said, you know, what you should do is read every single published circuit court opinion about the False Claims Act. And I did it over the course of 30 no, days. 
that would be hard, right? Now it'd be, <laughs> that would be a full-time job yeah, for a year. Yeah. But back then yeah. I did it in 30 that would, days. That would take yeah. Yeah. Back then I mean, that's you can do it in 30 days. Yeah. Yeah. I remember there was this one book uh, back in the day and, and it like compiled everything. And now there's 20 books and they're, you know, <laughs> it's, it's gotten pretty extensive. Um, yeah. And most of that's good. I mean, most of that, I think, you know, has given more opportunities for whistleblowers. But I'm sure you're concerned, as I am, about some of the defense, uh, best defense cases or best interpretations, I should say, of of cases um, uh, that have made us uh, sort of uh, have to fight back all the time. Um, are you I mean, I, I guess this is a, a pet peeve of mine, but. You you know this HHS working group was announced and and there was a lot of noise made about there being only um, defense bar attorneys on it that didn't turn out to be true, but they're constantly attacking whistleblowers as being greedy, and uh, if there's one thing that disturbs me, it's the idea that only whistleblowers are supposed to be, you know, Mahatma Gandhi or something, and and and. I don't know how we fight that. I mean, I really don't. I mean, we, we keep getting attacked for our people doing what the law says and reporting stuff and expecting to be paid for it, being told that that's somehow un-American. You know, what do you do about that? Because they're coming for us on that one. I think. Sure, sure. You know, uh, the best way to fight stories like that is with the truth, right? So showcasing and spotlighting the real stories of the whistleblowers and their stories of fighting back against companies doing the wrong thing uh, is the way you push back on that. You know, there, there's so many amazing, inspiring stories of whistleblowers who called your office or my office over the years because they uh, stood up to try to do the right thing and they were alienated, isolated, and terminated. And then they called us to try to get their jobs back, not even aware of the False Claims Act or there's some kind of reward structure, right? Um, so you know, I think we have to do a better job as, as a community of attorneys uh, and whistleblowers in, in highlighting the reality of how these, these stories come to light, right? That oftentimes they are kind of the single candle in a dark room inside the corporation. Uh, you know, I was in private practice for the last 10 years before coming back. And I was always amazed how often my client was the only relator or one of just a few relators in a huge mm -hmm. company uh, trying to stand up and do the right thing. Yeah, you were in private practice. And I, I noticed that, at least in one of your profiles, you took a case to the Supreme Court. Was that a False Claims Act case? or? or so, you know, I, I worked on, uh, yeah, I worked on a number of cases where I was, you know, brought in to help counsel them uh, in arguments. My cases weren't brought to the Supreme Court, mm -hmm. but I was there, you know, amicus or to help moot them or work with the Solicitor General's office and help prepare the arguments. Yeah. Because there aren't that many as, I mean, you know, there's only maybe... In terms of Supreme Court decisions, I don't think there's maybe one a year uh, of cases, so that did catch my eye. I, obviously, you'd be involved, uh, I would think, in any Supreme Court case now, uh, as president of Taft, somebody would want your help, I would think, on it. Um, do you think, what do you, I mean, what are you looking for right now in terms of new area we could go after? There was a story just today. A. It's just breaking on the news about $5 million going to 
of PPP money going to uh, payday loan makers, um, uh, which I think is a testament to how loose the regulations were with the PPP program. Uh, there's also at that time uh, being uh, um, uh, under uh, investigation by the SEC uh, for royalty rights. These aren't things that normally people associate with whistleblower laws, but if you think about it, you know there could be government royalties attached uh, to uh, oil and gas leases, so that could also go as a false claims act case. I mean, traditionally it's all been healthcare, but do you think we're going to see any expansion in the areas of uh, false claims act litigation? Yeah. You know, it's the old story, uh, the bank robber, why did you rob the bank? Well, that's where the money is, right? So uh, money is, uh, traditionally, the False Claims Act cases have been largely healthcare cases because that's where the money is. But under the recent stimulus bills, money's flowing everywhere. And where money flows, fraud follows. And uh, I think you're absolutely right. There's going to be False Claims Act cases in all, all areas uh, that touches our economy or touches government dollars. And government money is everywhere. Uh, as you said, Tony, I mean, oil royalties. If you, if you can name an, an industry, we can point to a case where there was a False Claims Act case. Well, that's good. Do you see any difference? I guess it's a little early to tell, but uh, Merrick Garland is uh, nominated to be the Attorney General. Um, uh, he uh, is widely respected in the legal community, but in particular, I think he wrote a dissent in a famous False Claims Act case that was actually decided by Judge Roberts um, uh, the other way. Um, uh, but uh, I guess it's fair to say we expect a fair shake out of the upcoming Department of Justice. Um, I, I personally haven't seen much in terms of line U.S. attorneys or anything like that that you could point to as being, you know, I mean, they generally look at the facts of the case and give us a fair shake, I think. But but I, I think there'll be a little more confidence amongst the general whistleblowing public maybe going forward. Do you think that's fair to say? Or Yeah, I, th- I think so. You know, the uh, Attorney General Barr in 1987 wrote a, a memo when he was with the Justice Department in which he questioned the constitutionality of the whistleblower provisions in the False Claims Act. Uh, by contrast, Merrick Garland, as you said, wrote a dissent in this Totten case in which he called the False Claims Act a broad anti-fraud statute, right, and, and supporting uh, the, a broad reading of the False Claims Act. So you, you, from, their, the, from their core, I think they come across very differently when it comes to the False Claims Act. But you put your finger on it. You know, our day-to-day interactions at the Justice Department have remained the same for, for many, many years, you know. Uh, uh, Deputy Assistant Attorney General Michael Granson's been there for years. We have great relationships with him. He remains there. Uh, received Taxpayers Against Fraud Honest Abe Integrity Government Award this year for his hard work over the last 20-something years defending the False Claims Act against opponents that look to tear it apart. Uh, and then, you know, uh, Director of the Civil Frauds, Jamie Yavelberg, remains there, uh, as does her de- uh, co-deputy directors, Andy Mao. And Colin Huntley. So you know, we know the people who work there. They are apolitical. They're not driven by political whims of changing administrations. They've been there through uh, people on the left, people on the right, uh, people who support the false claims act, and people who don't. So I think the best thing about our world is that we have certainty that we're going to get a fair, reasonable shake from the Justice Department. That they are uh, dedicated public servants who are committed to. Uh, making sure the False Claims Act is read broadly and correctly. So it's it's a it's the change in, in the AG uh, I think goes in a better direction for us. But uh, 
when push comes to shove, I think it really doesn't matter for us. Okay, that's good to know. Now, is TAF's role, I mean, TAF has files amicus briefs and it supports uh, uh, individual litigation and it, it's an unbelievably valuable resource if you happen to practice this kind of law because you have what amounts to a back office law firm of, of, of people who are expert in a really esoteric area of law that you can share ideas with and, and and all that. But do you see us getting into more advocacy uh, over the next uh, year or two? Um, I'm thinking, obviously, with respect to Escobar and, and the unfortunate interpretations that the defense bar keeps putting on it, um, maybe 9B issues. Uh, you know, I'm sure you have plenty of pet peeves of what we could be attacking. Um, uh, do you see any more legislation coming out or, or, or anything like that that we should be on the lookout and advocating for? Yeah. So, you know, last time I was uh, with Taxpayers Against Fraud uh, was during the, the FARA amendments uh, of 2009 yeah. and then uh, Obamacare in 2010. There, you know, there were important amendments that happened during that time that I was, uh, had the great opportunity to educate uh, senators and congressmen about why those amendments were so important. Uh, that need to come up again, right? As you said, there was a Supreme Court decision, the Escobar decision that uh, arguably ripped the hole into the False Claims Act liability provisions when it comes to certain cases. Uh, government dismissal was a, is a big concern. Those are issues that Senator Grassley has identified as something that he'd like to fix. Uh, he has uh, put forward legislation uh, this last summer. I'm sure it's going to find its way uh, to the Senate again, because these are these are issues that matter uh, to uh, fraud enforcement, right? So, um, if there are issues that are going to allow liability loopholes, uh, Senator Grassley, for the last forty years, has been protecting the False Claims Act. Um, you know, so my my role is to spotlight the need for that, to educate other uh, congressmen and senators who aren't as up to speed on the law as Senator Grassley is, to answer questions that they have. Um, just like last time, you know, I had an opportunity to talk about why whistleblower protections and provisions were needed in the SEC and CFTC and IRS. You know, all of that is just a matter of educating. It's not really. Uh, lobbying or advocacy. It's about educating the realities of what we're seeing there. Um, these cases involving fraud on the government are not just limited to the government. You know, if they're ripping off Medicare, they're ripping off private insurance. Uh, they are equal opportunity offenders and uh, defrauders oftentimes. So um, making sure that, that, that those fraud schemes are reachable by the law is, is probably my most important goal. Uh, making sure that whistleblowers are protected and that there's an avenue to recover those funds and that fraud schemes are brought to light um, is, is a matter of educating people on the Hill, but also educating the public so that when somebody is sitting behind a corporate wall and they're trying to stand up to do the right thing and they are fired, they at some point see something in the paper and say, wait a second, I was fired because I stood up for this, right? right? Exactly what's happening at this other company is happening at my company. Uh, we want to encourage those people to step forward. And when they do, we want them to have some kind of protection so that, it, so that they are uh, protected under the law and they have some avenue to get redress. So that's what the False Claims Act is about. It's the SEC, the IRS, CFTC, whistleblower statutes, uh, and increasingly a number of states are passing in these laws to ensure uh, that state dollars are protected as well so yeah it's a it's there's a lot of stuff happening right now in so many different areas it's, it's a great time to be back well I'm, I'm glad for you that way i i think 
we're up to like 30 states now. I could have the number wrong. We have like, we have half of Pennsylvania between like a Philadelphia and an Allegheny <laughs> County. Um, I think there's a bill in Ohio, um, which comes up every one. I'll never quite get there. That would be helpful. But we also, there's uh, private insurance in Illinois and California and yep. tax in at least New York, uh, some states that need a false claims act. Um, uh, but it's, you know, the, it's slowly creeping. We're so sort of slowly creeping into every state legislature, which is a good thing. I think we've only really lost New Hampshire, which has a pretty restrictive law after passing a decent false claims act. Um, so there's a lot of work to do on the state level, I guess. Yeah. Well, you know, false it's, I've had the pleasure of, uh, testifying in front of a lot of state legislators over the years. And it's, uh, it's interesting to hear the opponent's side, but the reality is red states, blue states, big states, small states, they all have state, they all have state false claims acts. Uh, it's a rare exception. Uh, in my home state of Pennsylvania, I, I'm currently sitting 45 minutes from the state capitol, and it, and it pains me uh, that I'm sitting in a state that can't seem to get a state false claims act together. Um, but yeah, it's one of those things where it's just you start pointing to the success that other states are seeing. And there comes a, a tipping point where people it's hard to argue the other side when the reality is you see other states protecting their, uh, their limited dollars and getting recoveries that your state's missing out on. So there will come a tipping point where we'll have all 50 states without a doubt. I think so. I, I happen to know a state uh, senator in, in, uh, in uh, Pennsylvania who'd be very sympathetic. So let, remind me to give you uh, the contact information. Great, great. Absolutely. Um, uh, but every, you know, every state we get, I think is a, you know, is a big help, obviously. I'm surprised we haven't seen as much standalone um, state false claims act cases. Um, and I say that because it's always occurred to me that if you're an attorney general and, you know, you don't, you know, you don't work for the administration of the state. Usually, usually you're a separate organization and, and you're a little less restrained uh, by uh, the vagaries of the so-called client. Um, and uh, so I'm, I've always been surprised that that hasn't become even more active. And uh, maybe we all need to think about looking at state-only false claims act cases a little more, um, even though obviously a nationwide scheme and a big payday is hard to uh, ignore. Um, uh, but it would be nice to get a Pennsylvania-wide state false claims act. A absolutely. <laughs> um, do you think that look at... You think they're going to look at these provisions like New York State has for for a a uh, state tax false claims act, or the or the dollars a little tricky on that for a smaller state? I mean, New York State, arguably, you could owe a lot of, you know, you could cheat New York State out of a lot of tax money because it's, you know, you got a lot of very wealthy people and big businesses there. Maybe that's not the case for for other states. Um, that, that's a good point. You know, I, DC on December first. Followed, the, the, followed New York's lead on this point, right? So they uh, removed the tax bar and on uh, where there's damages of $350,000 or more, you can use the DC False Claims Act to help recover those funds. I think that's a great test case 
for small jurisdictions to look at, right? D.C., the District of Columbia, uh, a lone city saying, we want to protect our tax dollars. For me, it makes more sense for small states to do this, right? They have, the, they have limited resources, prosecutorial-wise. This is a way to supplement their limited resources by uh, deputizing private citizens to bring cases on behalf of their jurisdiction to recover tax dollars. It makes tremendous sense for small jurisdictions to say, wait a second, we're, we're missing out here. We're so inundated with cases involving increased government spending over here, and we're missing dollars on the back end because they're not coming in through tax revenue. Um, I think it makes tremendous re- uh, sense for these small jurisdictions to pass these laws. Okay, that's good. That'll, we'll, hopefully we'll see some of that. That'd be great. Do you know historically what the bar was for taxes on the original False Claims Act federally? I mean, I, just, I, I, mean, I know it's there. I just don't know why it's there. Do you have any idea what that was about? You know, it's a little crazy. It's safe. Yeah, I know, I know some of the backstory. So, you know, in 86, uh, you know, Senator Grassley recognized there was going to be a big push from the defense bar at the time, right? Because this was passed during the times of the $900 hammers and the $20,000 toilet seats. Uh, I think he didn't want to fight the front on multiple, uh, fight the war on multiple fronts. So uh, you bring in the tax defense bar. If you lift the if you uh, lift the tax bar, and I thought he said, you know, let's 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 fight the war here. Um, so you know, I, it hasn't happened uh, on the federal side. I think there's some uh, a lot of eyes looking at New York right now to see how it's going to play out there. This world in which the defense argued that the, the world would fall uh, if the tax bar is removed uh, simply hasn't happened in New York. Uh, it's used judiciously. Uh, it was used to bring a, a huge case against Sprint for multi, multi-million dollars. Uh, so people are looking at New York and now they can look at DC to see what actually happens when you don't lift the tax bar, but modify the tax bar to go after the big tax sheets. Okay. That, that, you know, hopefully we'll see some progress on that because obviously it would be great if other states uh, adopted it. Yeah. I, I want to give you an opportunity to do an ad for TAF. Um, (laughs) uh, I I can just say that as a member, it's been an invaluable resource to me. Uh, I know you wouldn't have uh, uh, been president the first time, much less come back to do it again if you didn't think it was uh, uh, worth doing. But if if you're an aspiring whistleblower lawyer (laughs) and you want to know what to do in this uh, world, why would why would you pony up the money to come to TAF? Why would you? Why yeah. Would you come to so yeah, I and I I try to say this objectively as possible. But if you're practicing in the KETAM attorney or KETAM world uh, without being a member of TAF, it might be malpractice. Uh, it's just uh, it taps you into 400 other attorneys that specialize into this really nuanced area of the law uh, in which you get. Uh, real-time information about what's happening in the case law and on the uh, on Capitol Hill and the Justice Department. Um, it not only shortens the, your learning curve, but puts you in contact with other attorneys. It makes you, in a sense, a part of a large law firm, a multi-state law firm, uh, with people who have been practicing in this area for, area for many, many years. So I, you know, it's a very small membership due, uh, but the rewards and the value that you, that you receive. Uh, from the organization really goes well beyond uh, just being a bar association. So, you know, taxpayers against fraud, people always ask, you know, is, are you guys a bar association? Uh, I think the answer is yes 
And oftentimes say, uh, you know, if you're practicing in the Ketam world without being a member of TAP, it really is malpractice because it, it, it puts you in connection with 400 other attorneys that specialize in this area. And, and in essence, it makes you part of a national Ketam law firm. So you have 400 other attorneys. Many of them have been practicing in this area for many, many years. You're able to leverage the uh, resources and the knowledge of so many other attorneys. Many of them are former uh, U.S. attorneys or AUSAs or main justice or agency officials um, who are there to help you, guide you. Uh, of course, from an a organization standpoint, we provide a lot of resources like uh, case law and conferences and CLEs, but we also let you know what's happening on Capitol Hill and in the news media. Um, so it is, it is a, uh, not a bar association. I view it as a movement of, of dedicated change agents who are practicing in the KETAM uh, arena. So it's a it's a pleasure and an honor be, to be back with a lot of my friends uh, at Taxpayers Against Fraud. But if you are practicing in this area, we want you inside of the tent, uh, not outside of the tent making bad case law. So please join us. The, the membership fees are extremely uh, reasonable and the amount of value you get back uh, goes well beyond uh, the dollar price. So uh, make sure you reach out to us at taf.org if you're interested. Okay, I appreciate it. I appreciate your time and I appreciate all the work you do for us. And I would just say as a member, there's, it's pretty collegial. I mean, we're all um, looking for uh, separate cases, but I've never had a TAF member turn me down on a, on a question. And, and, you know, they can be pretty tough questions to figure out and take time to, to answer. And um, it's just a great group to be a member of. So I, I do appreciate it. Amen. I appreciate that, Tony. All right. Take it easy, Jeff. Thanks for your time. My pleasure. Thanks, Tony. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of the False Claims Act Insider. Be sure to check back next week for more insights into the world of whistleblower and Ketam law with your host, Tony Munter. All episodes can be streamed on PriceBenowitz.com along with your favorite streaming platforms.